I'm Suta Kavari and this is A Look at the Issues. Welcome to this week's episode of A Look at the Issue, a policy podcast based here at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. It is researched and produced by students reading for a Master's of Public Policy. On this episode of A Look at the Issues, we will be exploring the different ways we can hold governments to account at a time when democracies right across the world are increasingly under threat. Uh, we'll be joined by Priyanka Rao and Callum Vogi, who will be sharing insights from their experiences working in the legislative and media space on the different ways that we can hold governments to account. And later on, we'll be joined by Annalisa, a Brazilian MVP student, about some of the sacrifices, both the personal and professional, that many whistleblowers faced. And finally, Nick Kirby will shed some light on some of the challenges of government accountability and integrity. This is a look at the issues. The most critical role of the legislature was to ensure that the government, in terms of designing of its legislation and policies, uh, was was doing its job the way it was intended to do. We, we rely on media to inform the public so that the public can hold the government to account. So um, there's a very you know close relationship between public information and the media's um, you know, media doing their job properly. This decision put my career at risk because although it was not a legal decision, I knew that I was uh, leading with powerful congressmen in the, in the Brazilian uh, political system. Accountability, I think, is a tool, a means to, great, to, provide, uh, to promoting greater integrity in government, but it's not itself an end. And sometimes it can go too far. So joining us on this episode on how to hold governments to account is Callum Vogi and Priyanka Ra. Perhaps, Priyanka, to start with you, um, based on some of the work that you've done um, in the Indian context, what, what, what do we mean when we say we need to hold governments to account and why, why is that important? Sure. Thanks, Uta. Um, I'm happy to be having this chat with, with you guys here. Um, so to give you a little bit of context uh, in terms of what I've done, uh, I'm a lawyer trained in India. Uh, primarily that meant that uh, I spent a couple of years uh, practicing law in uh, both the lower courts and in the Supreme Court. A, a lot of uh, what I did was uh, constitutional law, which meant trying to hold um, the state accountable for any excesses in terms of violating the laws of um, citizens, uh, in terms of unconstitutionality or in, in their manner of delivery of services. But a large part of the work that I did after that was I worked with this think tank that uh, sought to support the work of uh, individual legislators, both at the central parliamentary level and state level, and uh, strengthen the institution of parliament as a whole. Uh, why why this uh, was critical in, in the larger scheme of things and, and what I realized from my time there was um, you know, like like we often talk about, if you look at the scheme in which democratic uh, countries today are sort of designed, you have the three organs of the state. I mean, typically you have your executive, you have your legislature, and you have your judiciary. And uh, we've all seen history has told us the dangers of concentration of power in one source and why this is a good system of organizing a state. Um, and and uh, one of the foremost roles of both the judiciary and the legislature then is to hold uh, the government accountable. So you all three work independently and, and do their job to the best of their abilities, but also act as checks and balances um, in terms of ensuring that uh, they don't step out of line in that sense. So. 
um, to me, the most critical role of the legislature was to ensure that the government, in terms of designing of its legislation and policies, uh, was was doing its job the way it was intended to do. And I think, and that's an important distinction that you make around the three different branches of government, right. and specifically the legislature, which is essentially seen as a people's representative, that's and right. in most countries it's called right the House of Representatives, and yeah. and essentially that's the check. Um, the, the the check and balances the role that he plays right. in holding the executive to power, and and I mean another branch or what what people many people call the fourth estate is mm-hmm. the media, which is crucial in also the functioning of any and the, the functioning of any democracy in not only just highlighting um, abuses of power but then also giving people the voice um, to to hold governments to account. So how do you how do you see the role of the media in in holding governments to account? And again, wh- why is that important? Right. So first of all, thanks Caleb, thanks for uh, having Welcome, me. Caleb. Thanks for having me here, Suta. And maybe to give a little bit of, of my background. Um, I previously worked for a nonprofit uh, media organization doing media development, where I was responsible for negotiating media partners, partnerships in 55 different countries. Um, and in my experiences of traveling to those different places and talking with editors, you know, I, I observed quite a few overarching um, concerns that probably do um, affect most media organizations. Uh, as you mentioned, the fourth estate. Um, you know, we, we rely on media to inform the public so that the public can hold the government to account. So um, there's a very, you know, close relationship between public information and the media's, um, you know, media doing their job properly. So, you know, from my observations, I see a few big issues that are happening right now. Um, and the biggest issue is actually uh, financial pressure. So um, many people expected that with digital transformations, you know, there would be new opportunities for media. But what we've, what we've actually seen is that advertising revenue has gone down across the board. Um, then additionally, uh, there are platforms like Facebook, which have new algorithms uh, that, you know, prior- prioritize content in different ways. So um, often more controversial content or slightly less academic content. Videos, for example, are prioritized in Facebook. So. Uh, you know, what this kind of results in is a lot of financial pressure for media and a struggle to get really important articles to the public. Um, This puts, you know, media in a very difficult position where they basically have, uh, we would say, four main choices. So one would be to receive government funding, which, um, you know, kind of goes against their independence. The other would be to receive funding from a business um, source, which again violates um, independence money from a foundation or the f- fourth choice is crowdsourcing, which is actually quite difficult to do. So, you know, these are kind of the kind of situation that media is in right now. And then additionally, there's uh, government interference, which I think most people are more familiar with. So that would be use of defamation laws or, you know, removal of publication rights or using fines, shutting down websites, etc. And that's a more nefarious way where the government does interfere in media's ability to um, do its work. So, so I mean, yeah. interesting enough, both of you, um, touch on two very key institutions in holding governments to account but those are also but when we and then when we're looking around the world we see that those are also two key institutions that have been put under intense pressure i mean for example when we look in this country um the prime minister gave uh, in this country obviously being the united kingdom the government the prime minister gave a speech uh, on the uh, on post brexit and a few and a few journalists were were barred from covering that and we saw that with mike pompeo yeah. the the us secretary of state 
again, denying access to, to certain journalists that are quite critical. And we obviously, when we go through the Twitter feed of the president of the free world, the constant theme is ex- essentially the media is an enemy of the people. Mm-hmm. And how do you, how do you, with that sort of like that level of frustration, um, and obviously it creates a very antagonizing culture of sort of like diluting the impact the media has on holding, holding very powerful people to account. H- how do you go around that, Callum? Well, that's a million dollar question, right? <laughs> so, How much money do you have? <laughs> not a million dollars. Uh, but, you know, this is this is a very difficult thing because I think trust in the media is at an all-time low in many countries, but also trust in the government is also at an all-time low. So, you know, it's kind of, when you're thinking about how to remedy the situation, it's, again, I think oftentimes comes down to the business model of media organizations. And if they can't be independent financially, you know, their editorial independence is also going to be under question always. So I think us as a society, as governments, as different decision makers need to think about how media needs to be reformed or supported to really um, become reliable and and trustworthy and, you know, through process, make, um, hold governments accountable and make the public, uh, you know, able to also hold governments accountable. Yeah. And and Priyanka, perhaps in way of thinking about the role the media plays in what Callum said is essentially disseminating information mm-hmm. to the public to ensure that they make very info- well-informed decisions when they either go to the ballot or whether either the protest. From your from your role, having worked in in the legislative space, that check that sort of like that check and balances. Mm-hmm. What is the importance of the media, and also what other avenues can we look at at holding um, governments to account or the executive to account? Right. Um, so coming back to the legislature, I, I think um, one of the key distinctions is that the role of the legislature starts and ends when, especially in parliamentary democracies such as India, where the executive is also piloting a bill, unlike, say, in the U.S., right, where there is more a more distinct separation of powers, where the legislature also introduces a bill. So then it becomes all the more important for the legislature to scrutinize any bill or policy that is introduced by the government or the budget and uh, see that whatever is passed through uh, parliament is, you know, stands up to scrutiny, is protecting the rights of citizens, has, has passed through that muster. Uh, the the media plays an important role during that process because it's helping the people stay on top of um, what your elected representatives are doing. We've we've just had, um, you know, when the prorogation of parliament happened, say, in the UK, uh, these are critical uh, critical issues of significance importance that affect our lives or or the budget session that's being passed in India at this time. How do I, as a citizen, uh, get a sense of what's going on inside the house? These are the people I've elected to represent me. And, and I think the media plays a key role in in just keeping me on abreast on what is happening on a day-to-day basis. But also, uh, say, once a bad law passes through parliament simply because of a majoritarian, you know, government that's also in legislature and you and you can't, can't do anything about it because of the way the numbers play out, um, and then it becomes law. What are the ways in which that can be challenged, right? So one of the ways is obviously the judiciary. You can challenge a law in court, but that obviously requires a lot of money, time, energy, expertise. Uh, but the other way in which you can build uh, public support momentum is the media. If you're not, uh, and it's an important way of connecting people in different contexts, right? I mean, how do I know that um, 
petrol prices, the rise in petrol prices that's affecting people in, say, Delhi the same way as it is in another part of the country. How do you ensure that all of these various threads are being tied together? It's, it's the media, and without a free and fair media, um, you cannot call a country an effective, thriving democracy. So I think it's absolutely critical in if you look at the entire lifespan of, of governments functioning. I mean, earlier earlier today, we spoke to Annalisa Almeida, who is also one of the students here at the Blavatnik studying for a Master's of Public Policy, around sort of like that personal sacrifice that you need to make mm-hmm. when you're working in that space. As a civil servant and you see something that's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, some of like the, the considerations that you have to take into consideration, the considerations that you have to take into mm-hmm. consideration, some of the personal sacrifices, oh, the personal and the professional. Yeah. Um, do you blow the whistle? And I see there's been, there's been a number of um, whistleblower protection bills that have passed in some countries. Yeah. And, but we're also seeing that there's a regression of yes. those, of those um, whistleblower uh, protection bills in some countries. Yeah. What is the Priyanka? Perhaps and you you can speak best to this. What is what is a what is a whistleblower bill, and what does it aim to protect? Um, essentially, uh, a whistleblower law is a mechanism by which somebody who inside the system can report um, on acts of typically on acts of corruption or public or or you know uh, misconduct or or immoral acts that are not in public interest. So um, if I'm say a bureaucrat in the Ministry of of Health. And I, I believe that procurements are happening that are illegal and, and it's my boss. Uh, I, I want a way in which I can report this without fearing for my life or my job. So typically a whistleblower act in that country is, is supposed to provide me with a mechanism to do this. So this also ensures internal accountability. We've talked about external accountability mechanisms like the legislature and the media but but whistleblower laws are uh, are an important uh, means by which you can ensure internal accountability within the government system and it also speaks to a healthy functioning uh, government this is what Annalisa had to say about her experience working as an attorney in the national treasury of brazil i am Annalisi. i'm from brazil i've been in public service since 2000 and since 2006, I've been uh, working in the Attorney General of the National Treasure. So this is a kind of uh, public uh, law office. And from 2014 uh, until 2017, I was in charge of a specific department of uh, federal tax liabilities. And our main uh, responsibility was design strategies for recovery, um, outstanding ta- tax liabilities, prevent prevent uh, tax avoidance, and combat uh, tax evasions. Uh, so we take a, a step that was a little uh, brave, but a little, um, how do you say this, a little uh, dangerous. The, uh, the information about uh, tax, debtor, tax debts and tax debtors in Brazil um, is public, but it, and it was, and it is until now, in, uh, on the internet, but it's not uh, systematic. So what it did at that moment, we transformed the information about the, uh, all the, the Brazilian parliament in systematized the information in three lists. One about uh, the people, so Congress, congressmen and congresswomen, uh, who was, who, who were uh, tax debtors. The second list is about the corporates, 
that these these people um, uh, were uh, partners. And the third one is a, was about um, tax debtors had donate money for their electoral campaigns. And then, uh, although this information was public, and it was very sensitive, and I decided by myself to uh, publish this in the, on the internet, in the official uh, page of the Attorney General. My boss at that moment was on vacation, and it was a very, um, we are, until now, but at the moment we are very close, and um, I, I, it's important to say I, I had um, the, the power to, do, to take that decision at that moment, but it was a, a, a huge step, a huge, a huge decision. The, the lists um, didn't stay online for 10 minutes because it was like a, a backlash. Uh, the, I, I received phone calls for uh, high-level uh, authorities in Brazilian uh, fe uh, federal administration, and in 10 minutes the lists were out of internet. But it was uh, time enough to the list is spread in WhatsApp groups, in emails, and in in broad media. So in the next day, it was in the front page of uh, lots of newspapers, in the in the uh, in the most important ones. Um, it, it it was uh, very difficult uh, personally because I put my my career, my my job, in in at risk. I think I, I took the decision to to publicize the lists uh, because we need at that moment some um, some tool to to make pressure in very powerful uh, people. Maybe uh, from one side it's a, a little uh, naive, but uh, we are uh, supporting. I I was supporting my decision in the the power of um, publicizing and the power of the media. Uh, this decision put my, my career uh, at risk because um, although it was not a legal decision, uh, I, I know that I, I, I knew that I was uh, leading with a, a powerful um, congressman in the, in the Brazilian uh, political system, and I knew that uh, the, the the answer, probably answer, uh, uh, will will, uh, will be uh, something is uh, powerful, true uh, towards me, and it was really what happened. Uh, the the uh, very high authority uh, asked uh, to fire me, but but I think that there is. Um, when you are a public service, in a, especially in a developing country, and you need to uh, take uh, decisions, daily decisions, you have to you have to balance what you really believe and what you are what your country need. It's not easy to take decisions. Uh, there are many uh, personal um, thing, things in at stake. I mean, if you stay 
in your comfort zone, you you don't uh, help your country to progress, to go ahead. You need to face you need you face challenges, daily challenges. You face uh, powerful uh, men and women. You face uh, many. Uh, wrong situations and you be, you you need to be very um, certain uh, of what you believe I was prepared to to the worst case but it was not the situation all right and thank you so much Annalisa um I think an, another element that we perhaps have in touched on which is equally important is around protest and how with the information that citizens have at their disposal and when that frustration builds. Mm-hmm. Um, one avenue that a lot of the, the public has is protests, and we've been seeing a number of protests. And Priyanka, perhaps you can talk about some of the protests that have been happening in India with the citizenship bill that's been um, introduced. And I mean, we've been, uh, seeing, yeah. we've been seeing how how protest action has really led to fundamental changes in perhaps not um, the policies, but like the yeah. politics, where that has shifted grounds. I mean, if you can tell us, if you can sort of perhaps talk to what role protests play mm. plays in holding governments to account and perhaps touch a bit on your experience and why that is important. Sure. Um, I think one of the biggest biggest issues right now, I, I completely agree. I think Callum and I were just having a chat outside before this and we were talking about how uh, Callum was saying that this is really the year of protests and I couldn't mm, agree yes. more. Um, especially in India, I think in the longest time I haven't seen people come together with this sort of energy uh, and and passion against um, against uh, what they believe are, are you know excesses of the government um, I think I, I think the reason protests happen is when traditional methods of accountability fail us right we've said that to take the example of the citizenship amendment act that you just uh, touched upon uh, where are the stages at which this could have been checked this could have been checked at the stage of uh, drafting of the bill in in government itself didn't happen this could have happened at the stage of passing of the bill in parliament you could have you know of course there were parliamentarians who stood up and said this is unconstitutional it violates rights but didn't happen it passed it became law in the public domain you either go to court, but at the same time, now it's a law that affects me as a person. So what are my avenues to push back against this government excess? And and like I said, when all other avenues fail us, and like Callum was saying, when you also have a media that is... Um, less independent and more a government mouthpiece than I take to the streets demanding that my rights be restored and that my rights be protest protected. And uh, that is, I think, what is happening. I think all of this energy finally coming together and, uh, and, and I think the frustration and anger that people have been holding on to, our, our representatives are failing us, our institutions are failing us. So we're taking to the streets. Yeah, sh- sure. I think, uh, you know, Media plays a very important role in kind of building the momentum that yeah. eventually does bring people Absolutely. out into the street. So outside Priyanka and I were talking about, you know, protests in Hong Kong and in Moscow, uh, yeah. in Kazakhstan and in India, of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, these countries all have very different political systems and mm. they all have different degrees of media freedom. Right. So in some of those countries, there are pretty much only government mouthpieces. And then in other countries, there is some yeah. semblance of independent, independent media. And then in other countries, there's only exile media. But in either case, media in, in all those uh, countries did play a very vital role in kind of getting mm-hmm. people to the street. Um, you know, in countries where media is very censored, this can actually be 
um, a double-edged sword because mm -hmm. if all the media in the country is owned or controlled by the government, the, it results with more citizen media, which yeah. is not fact-checked, which can have um, you know misinformation. So sometimes you know such tight control of the media can actually backfire on a very authoritative uh, government. That's true. I think I, a lot of the information I'm consuming today is is through Twitter and yes. people posting videos. And you're hoping it's accurate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And is it is it, is it a toolkit? Like if I was if I was an ordinary citizen on on the street and I felt that my rights were being violated either which way, or I felt that my community wasn't getting the rights of the services that it needed to get, or I saw that there's been rampant corruption. As I mean, we students here at the Blavatnik, we're studying policy. And and we're the and ideally, I mean in the ideal world, we are the people who are gonna go out there back into our into our communities and our context that we come from. And we are either going to be the people drafting those laws, we're either gonna be the people influencing those laws. Um, what what advice would you give? Yeah, sure. I can start maybe so about for ordinary citizens, I think it's very important that they inform themselves first and foremost. So that means finding a variety of different sources media sources um, in countries with media is not independent, obviously even turning to Twitter or places like that, maybe not fact-checked, but uh, when you don't have other options, you just need to um, get as much information as you possibly can. And then to answer your second question about, you know, public policy students, I think, um, you know, a lot of our classmates are from government backgrounds, and I would just encourage our classmates not to see media as a tool that can be manipulated um, but, but also not to see media as an opponent to be feared. So I think media, it's a very natural part of a functioning government and uh, it should be celebrated as such. And may, Priyanka, do you want to talk about writing legislation maybe? Yeah, I, I think uh, to me, the biggest lesson also from, from just looking at the Indian context is I think we will have good governments, we will have bad governments. Uh, while we should hope that, that they act in good faith and they're, they're, they do their job well, I think as a as a country, as a society, what we need to really ensure is that we have strong institutions, um, that the accountability mechanisms that exist are 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 strong and are uh, and are vigilant. So be it the legislature, be it pushing to ensure that our judiciary remains strong and independent, be making sure that our election process is free and fair, and people go out and vote and make their voices heard. So so making sure that our institutions stay. Uh, on top of the game and, and robust. I think I think that's critical to ensuring that our governments don't uh, continue to to uh, pull push all of those excesses onto the people. Thank you, Priyanka and Callum. And finally, we are joined by Nick Kirby, who directs the Building Integrity Program here at the Blavatnik School of Government, shedding some light on the tension between government accountability and public trust. This is what he had to say. I'm Nicholas Kirby. I'm director of the Building Integrity Program uh, at the Blavatnik School of Government. Um, we research the meaning of integrity in government, uh, its importance, uh, what drives integrity and what might inhibit it. And finally, uh, we aim to engage practitioners uh, and other members uh, of the community uh, in building integrity in government. When discussing accountability, there are at least four initial questions uh, that we should ask ourselves. First of all, what is accountability? Secondly, why accountability? Thirdly, what is the standard to which we are holding people accountable? And finally, what are the consequences of accountability in government? When we think about accountability, we often think about it 
least in the public realm, as a duty. Uh, someone has a duty uh, to give account, that is to kind of give the reasons uh, for their actions uh, and the decision and the reasons that they made a, a decision uh, uh, leading to those actions. Uh, and this implies two key things. The first is that uh, public actors make decisions and act in ways that are conducive to accountability. Uh, they don't hide the basis of those decisions or the materials or information or evidence upon which they made them. It also implies that the actions of governments should be attributable to specific decision makers and not simply disappear into some sort of collective mass of responsibility. It also implies, on the other side, structures that facilitate those who have a right to accountability to gain access to those who owe accountability. So whether that is in the most obvious structures of democracy itself, or whether that lies in the media, in freedom of information, legislation, inquiries, uh, royal commissions, and the like. Perhaps the most important reason for accountability uh, is that it allows us to see whether or not those decision-making agents are conforming with particular standards, the particular standards of office and particular standards of decision-making. So that kind of that begs the question, well, what is that standard? To what standard are we holding public decision-makers to account when we are holding them accountable? And that is a very hard and deeply normative question. Within the Building Integrity Program, we work with a concept of public integrity as at least part of that answer. We think that one of the crucial things to which we need to hold governments to account is that their institutions as a whole kind of display a, a robust disposition to pursue their own public purpose, to do so efficiently within the constraints of legitimacy and consistent with their commitments. And that also implies holding particular public officials to account to make sure that they are doing their best to support that overall institutional goal. So in our view, the simple standards of accountability is not merely, are you obeying the law? It's not merely, are you conforming to political opinion or to popular opinion, but rather whether or not you are delivering truly on the purpose of your institution and doing so in a way that maintains uh, its overall integrity. The, the primary consequence is that by holding decision makers to account, or at least knowing that we might hold them to account, they might be more likely to conform to the very standard to which we are holding them to account. It should be, as a well, a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. The threat of publicity leads people to do that which we, we, uh, uh, which we want them to do. Um, so accountability is, is in many ways a, 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 a robustness mechanism for government. It's a way in which we try to incentivise officials of government to, do, to conform to the standards 
of government. We also tend to hope that that will then lead to greater trust and support in government. That people, having seen that the government has integrity and have confidence that they're hearing the truth about what the government's doing and that they are truly they truly have integrity therefore people will be more inclined to rely upon government to be confident in government and will have display a certain willingness to support and stand up for government institutions if they're under threat from various forces within society and arguably that is uh, those threats are ever more present however to conclude there are two important myths about accountability that we should dispel. The first is that more accountability necessarily leads to greater integrity in government. Accountability, I think, is a tool, a means to, great, to, provide, uh, to promoting greater integrity in government, but it's not itself an end. And sometimes it can go too far. Imagine if everything you did every day was fully accountable, you probably would never do anything at all. The right amount of red tape would get in, get in the way of your achieving your main purpose. Your ability to reason or take risks would be highly constrained. You would become incredibly risk adverse. So accountability itself is a measure and a very important measure, but one that needs to be balanced against the other goals of government. The second myth is that more accountability leads to more trust. And the reason this is a myth, in a sense, <laughs> when you reflect upon it, becomes obvious. If your accountability leads to finding out the government lacks integrity, then you're not going to trust government more. And that's all we've got for you on this week's episode of A Look at the Issues. Join us again next week, A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based here at the Blavating School of Government at the University of Oxford. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram at A Look at the Issues. You could also send us an email. We are on studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk. And you can find us anywhere and everywhere where you find your podcast. I'm Suta Kavari and this is A Look at the Issues.